Welcome to Psyched for Business, helping business leaders understand and apply cutting-edge business psychology principles in the workplace. Hi, and welcome to Psyched for Business. My name is Richard Anderson. Thank you for joining me. In this episode, I'm joined by John Barnes, co-founder at The Listening Collective. John is a lecturer in organizational transformation, a regular TEDx speaker and author around the topics of human growth in the workplace, and he's worked with thousands of leaders adopt progressive ways of working that have transformed their organizations. In this episode, John helps us to try and unblur the lines between coaching and therapy in the workplace and how providing coaches who are qualified therapists too can go far deeper beneath the surface in order to maximize professional performance. Thanks for listening. John Barnes, thank you very much for joining me. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Thanks for having me, man. Great to be here. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure to have you and it's a pleasure to be speaking about this topic. It's one that I'm very interested in, the Listening Collective, which I know that we'll get into in a huge amount of uh, detail throughout the course of this podcast. You guys have got a very unique approach. But I guess just to set the scene, John, it would be really useful if you wouldn't mind giving the audience a, a bit of background on yourself and, and, and how you came to form the Listening Collective. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. A bit about myself first. The thing that's had me ticking and got me working for my whole career really has been an interest in how we organize ourselves. We're all familiar with the model that most of us have grown up with, which is a, an autocratic model. From school, you you sit down and you kind of passively receive information from the boss at the front. You're told where to sit, when you're allowed to speak, what you're allowed to wear, when you're allowed to go to the toilet. And as far as I can tell, work is roughly the same. You have a boss instead of grades, you have pay grades. Instead of subjects, you have departments. The uniforms are roughly similar. And it's kind of a continuation of that same autocratic system. And I see it not working for many reasons partly just for for human reasons. I think it stunts our growth, or let's say it stunts our development. And when I say development, I mean, in the research sense of our adult development, the fact that it's possible for us to grow into more complex ways of understanding the world. And it's also just not that nice, as well as not that efficient or effective. It it can be quite wasteful. Not that there's no role at all for autocracy or hierarchy. There, There definitely is some but I've made my, my career out of trying to work with alternatives, typically what is sometimes known in the field as self-organizing teams or self-organization. That's kind of my thing. Along the process of doing this, you know, we're working with complexity. So it's complex and it's nuanced and it doesn't work. And you try to do this, but that happens. And there's second and third degree implications to everything. But the thing I keep coming up against or keep having my curiosity peaked by is that there's all these ways we can organize ourselves far better in the 21st century that are far more inclusive of complexity and nuanced. And yet, all of those ways we might self-organize better still, to me, bring about the constant idea that how well are we actually self-managing, like at managing my self. I have a self or at least a sense that I have a self. Like, I'm not sure how real that is. But <laughs> that's a full topic in itself. Isn't exactly, it? absolutely. Yeah. But I certainly struggle to manage it. And I notice that in the teams I work with. And particularly for leaders who are dealing with greater degrees of complexity, you know, a big organization, constant change. If you just look at the last few years from pandemics to Ukraine to energy crises to cost of living crises, leaders are having to deal with this. 
and it's hard. And so it seems to me that for all the tools and processes and ways we can organize ourselves really well, fundamentally, our capacity to manage ourselves is something we could all do with help with and we could do with that help because everyone can do with a bit of help. Like I say that in a loving, compassionate sense, but also because we can all grow and increase our capacity for performing. I don't mean performing like playing a role. I mean, actually getting stuff done. And so the Listening Collective exists for that purpose, to, to help people and often leaders to navigate complexity, to deal with change and to grow from there, really. John, before we get into the, to the Listening Collective, I mean, how far would you go with this? You talked right at the beginning about when we're children in school, we get told where to sit, what to do. I mean, how much do you think we should be looking at, at the areas of school and changing how that all works? Or is this just a workplace thing, and just in your view? I'll answer it in two ways. My personal application of it is to the workplace. So I kind of go from the principle that, or from the, the premise, let's say, that we, you know, school's incredible in lots of ways, by the way, before I go and give the downside. Like, it's amazing I'm even in a position in 2022 where I criticize education. That says how far we've gone and how far we've got and how great the world is in, in many ways. However, I also think it in many ways stunts our development. For example, like the a child's brain is typically not ready to understand abstract concepts like maths until roughly 12 years old, yet we start teaching it at five, which is, to my mind, slightly absurd. And a number of things like that. We also have our autonomy kind of stolen from us. So I see that as very important. But my professional application of this is that we as adults grew up like that. And so there's some unlearning and relearning to do for us. So adult education in some sense. And when I say that, I really want to make clear to listeners, I include myself as a novice and a student with a long way to go in that. That's my professional interest. I am absolutely fascinated by education. It might be a whole other topic that I've done some research and have some experience in. But professionally, my, I put my work into adult education, let's say. Yeah, and I can tell you're very passionate about it. It was just out, just out of interest to see how far that spanned, if you like. Fantastic. So that's a brilliant background. I appreciate that, John. Talking about the listening collective itself. So I know that you guys are unique and I'm, I'm, I'm sure you'll talk through how you are unique. I think it's very, very interesting, this whole debate that people have. And it's an interesting topic of conversation, coaching versus therapy and where where the lines blur or where the, where the line goes between the two. I know that you've written articles on it. You've had LinkedIn threads on it. I, I, I did something fairly similar recently, but I'd be really keen to get into to get into that topic if you'd maybe be happy to discuss that in a bit of detail. So in terms of coaching or business coaching, let's say, traditionally, what does a business coach do? Maybe first, just before I answer that, I don't know to what degree I'm creating or observing this dichotomy, but the way I came across it was that I, I myself was doing really well in my career. There's nothing broken and actually there was nothing I wanted more. Everything was great. But I thought, well, I still want to grow and I want to grow for the sake of it, right? Not to undo a wrong, not to get this or get that. I just, for the sake of it. As I did that, I thought, well, you know, I should get a coach, right? That's what, that's what we do. And so I started thinking, well, what, what would a coach get me? And this is where maybe I can just, I'm aware to listeners, I'm going to pigeonhole coaching. And I know I'm wrong. There's as much diversity within the category of coaching as there is between the categories of coaching and therapy. And the same would be true for therapy. But fundamentally, I think, as a kind of 
cheap heuristic, we go to coaching to perform better, do more, do faster, earn more, make better decisions. So these are all output orientated things. And then there's a huge variety as to how a coach deals with that. Fundamentally, it's in order to achieve the output at the end. And it's about the future. Whilst I saw a huge benefit in this, I kind of had the instinct that were I to even want those outputs, the problem is, you know, I felt at a level where I wanted, I wanted to grow, but I didn't know for what output. I didn't have an output in mind. And so in a way, what I was looking for was not to look forward, but to look deeply and to understand myself more. And I kind of see myself as the tool that I've got to do and be anything or everything. And therefore, it felt what I decided to do was not to get a coach, but to get a therapist. And then I was like, well, that's interesting because we go to therapy for our personal lives, not our professional lives. Yeah, I'm, I'm really sensing that since I'm my only tool, I'm my only tool to do my work with, but I'm also my only tool to be a husband and a dad with. It's the same tool. So that distinction doesn't make sense to me right now. But then I was like, well, with therapy, we go there to heal ourselves. And I mean that etymologically, like a physiotherapist is to heal the body and a psychotherapist is to heal the psyche. And yet I was there with nothing on the surface at least that needed healing. But I could tell that there was potential in me that I was yet to meet or understand and that I needed to go deep to find that out. And so this, this was where this was born, this coach versus therapy. That was a self-observation. That was, that was just something that you realized was happening. Absolutely. I'd add to that then observing what I see in workplaces, which is that I get demands from organizations about people. So right, a head of HR or a head of learning development or someone like that will come to me and have some peeve or moan or desire for their team, which might be to perform better, to make decisions better, to handle conflict better. And what we go to are tools to do that with. And I find these tools incredibly valuable. But fundamentally, I also think they're just tools. And like I said, the, the meta tool, the mother of all tools that I've got is me. As far as I can see, therapy is the best interrelational tool we have right now. There's, now, within that field, there's so many modalities. Some I'm not particularly attracted to, some I am. So this is this dichotomy kind of continuing. Now, what we've ended up doing, call it coaching by therapists. The way I've kind of tried to articulate it before is that typically what someone is bringing to us in our coaching sessions is some sort of professional situation or life, right? They have either a problem they're trying to solve or an opportunity they're trying to grasp. And as far as I can tell, coaching would then try and move us forward into the future where we're succeeding, where, we, where we're on the flip side of this situation and, and everything's rosy. But having therapists as coaches, what we're hoping to do is that you go from that professional life downwards. Think of an iceberg where 10% above the surface and 90% beneath. We go deep instead of forward. So rather than going over the iceberg, we go underneath it into your personal processes, how you deal with conflict, what identities you hold, how you're processing a particular situation, how you feel just in certain situations or how you make sense of things cognitively for that matter. When you deep dive, if you go like literally deep sea diving, you'll find, I don't know, shipwrecks, but you'll also find treasure chests. 
But certainly I would never go deep sea diving a shipwreck without a certified instructor, which is why at the Listening Collective, our coaches are qualified or in advanced training to be psychotherapists. And then you can emerge on the other side, having found some of those treasures, having explored the, the shipwreck that we all have with the help of someone you feel safe with. And you can emerge, hopefully able to grasp those opportunities, but not only are you grasping those opportunities, you're doing it with this far greater understanding of yourself, which allows you to grasp many other opportunities. I don't even know what they might be at that point, but your, your tool, like yourself, hopefully is developed by then. So we feel this is like both meaningful, but also what it gets from coaching, which is really valuable, is still a sense that, you know, if therapy can be kind of seen as looking backwards and being a bit navel gazily and a bit indulgent, what we're taking from coaching is the ability to maybe look down and deep, but then look forward to have an actual impact, whether it's in your workplace or whatever it is, and coming back above the surface, right? Not just staying down beneath. I mean, it's re really, really interesting stuff, John. So if you're working with a with an organization and leadership team and you're doing some coaching with them, they come to you with initially with the problem and you start to deep dive into that person. I guess how readily do they volunteer information about their past or challenges or whatever that might be? Because to me, sitting at the, at the face of it, if I'm sitting with a business coach and they start delving into that, that sort of area, it's probably going to take a lot for me to to want to volunteer. Do you ever see that as being a bit of a, a bit of a challenge? And if so, how do you circumnavigate it? Well, there's a few elements to it. First of all, the way we work with clients is we, we typically contract for a number of hours and typically a group of people that they'll give this service access to internally. And those people are given a calendar and then they can find their coach and start. And those are one-to-one -one confidential sessions. And like I said, everyone's qualified unit you know, psychotherapy training is rigorous. And so you're faced with someone who's done the work themselves. They've seen their own shipwreck and that can make you feel a bit safer. But nonetheless, what you pick up is true. There can be resistance. The first thing to say is that person only needs to book a session if they want to. No one's making them book a session, or at least I really hope not. It's certainly never us that would put that pressure. <laughs> My feeling is that we benefit from things quite often and mostly when we ask for them and have some readiness to it. You know, I'm not going to say it's not good to ever be pushed into things that you're not sure of, but certainly a willingness to be there is kind of key to any coaching, whether it's coaching or therapy relationship. So that's the first bit. It's voluntary, right? And the second part is your coach or therapist is never there to pry into you. Not at all. We don't know what to call them because we're coaches who are therapists. Maybe listeners is the, the best version of this. We're here to do just that and listen. And it's by listening that that person takes us where they feel comfortable going maybe to the edge of the shadow then it's their decision if bit by bit they want to go there and so that's definitely something that our listeners are really used to working with is is just the real principle that we we follow you and that feels really key and actually just adding to that shadow point i had um i was doing some getting some feedback from some clients recently and there was this really great metaphor that came up that actually in order to you know, think of any story, big story, like, I don't know, Gandalf's a good one, right? He, he's Gandalf the Grey, but it's only once he falls into the mines of Moria and fights the Bullrog that he comes out Gandalf the White. So he had to go deep and it had to get dark. So that's kind of a key part of how we seem to develop. That hero's journey is seen everywhere. Luke Skywalker becomes a knight via the cave. You know, it's, you see it all the time. 
What you need is your Yoda there, maybe to go with you. Like that's quite key. But what came up in this conversation with the client was that monsters are only scary in the dark. You don't have stories of monsters where the light the light was shone on them and they weren't scary anymore. Monsters are only scary in the dark. And hopefully getting to the edge of the areas that we feel vulnerable with is is just about where you want to be and then you go you go there at your own pace or not at all for that matter. That's totally up to the coachee. Brilliant. And when it comes to the therapy that you guys will will offer and uh, and of course you're you're giving people the opportunity to speak. You're, you're listening very intently. When it comes to the therapy side of things, what are there any specific therapy that, that works better than others? Or is it case-by-case case basis? How does that work? There's two ways of answering that. One is the reason we're called the listening collective. The listening word's really key. And that's because of some age-old research, but that seems to still hold true from what I can gather, which I think Carl Rogers initiated, which was basically that it seems that the success of a course of what he called a helping relationship. I want to be clear that we're coaches uh, or we're, we're acting in the capacity of coaches, not therapists. But what he found was that modalities didn't seem to matter nearly as much, at least, as the relationship between those two people. So he found that were if empathy was present, congruence was present, and unconditional positive regard were present, then the likelihood of this being beneficial to the person asking for help would increase. And the modality kind of didn't matter so much. So that's why listening is the absolute foundation. We come and meet you. And hopefully I have this expression that it's um, when we're heard, we hear ourselves. You start to notice things you're saying that make more or less sense. So that's the the first part to mention. Then in terms of the, because our, our collective of coaches is growing, it's like where to look, because actually, like I said earlier, there's so much diversity within that field. We are currently showing a preference, and it's actually a preference that the coaching world, I think, would relate to. It's modalities that tend to meet people in the present moment. Uh, they don't ask to go into your past, although those patterns can be useful. Yeah, because I think as a layman, and uh, you know, I'm by no means an expert in these areas, but psychoanalysis would, would appear ostensibly to be very different to something like CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. So yeah, psychoanalysis is probably, I'm not, I'm not like saying there's no value to psychoanalysis, but it's certainly not something that we're bringing into our sessions with clients. We've got coaches who are trained gestalt therapists. Psychosynthesis is another one, which is really interesting because it is a kind of a generalist modality. So it includes lots of modalities like CBT, so more cognitive ones. Gestalt focuses more on your emotional world and reactions to things. What they have in common, certainly, is meeting someone in the present, not with some remembered or pseudo-remembered version of our past. We're not there to do that at all. We meet people in the present. We go to whatever depths we go to, and we re-emerge with hopefully a new future and new version of ourselves quite often in mind. At least that's the the feedback we're getting is that that approach is more effective than what people have experienced in traditional coaching. Okay, so, so John, one of the areas I'm keen to explore and how the listening collective would, would approach a particular situation, I'll use me as a, you know, as a good example. So one of the challenges that, that I've had in the past is, for example, I've been a little bit hesitant to spend money, things like marketing, staffing, those types of things. And I guess, ultimately, when we dive a little bit deeper, that probably boils down to the fact that I don't want 
to fail. I don't want to spend all of the money. There's a risk there. What happens if the business fails? And I guess for me, there's probably an innate fear of fear of failure there if we went very, very deep. But if you were a, a coach of mine, as an example, how would you go about dealing with that particular scenario or approaching that scenario? My key interest there goes into your fear of failure itself. Of course, one approach there is to look at all the possible simulations of how this particular decision you're making could go, right? Like if you spent the money, if you didn't, if it went wrong, if it didn't go wrong. And these are all really important and useful tools. And many of our coaches would use them, no doubt themselves, like simulating and imagining versions of the future is definitely something that's interesting. But what piques my interest, and I imagine would pique many of our coaches' interest, who I remind the audience are far more qualified than I am. I would imagine it's it's interesting to me, certainly, the fear of failure itself, which, like you say, is something we all experience, I certainly experience. But to go there could be interesting. Like, how does your fear of failure, you know, what does that look like? First of all, like, biologically, do you experience, how do you experience fear? And what's your relationship with failure? Is it something that exists in your personal life or in your past, perhaps? And going into that could be interesting, not only because maybe it will help you make a good financial decision right now, but if your relationship to fear and to failure and to both of those things changes, many decisions you make in the diff- in the future will change. And not only the decision, but how you feel about the decision and your process of making that decision could be really different. And maybe that kind of summarizes, it's great that you've brought up an example that summarizes what we believe and we're hearing from our clients is the difference between the way we coach and traditional business coaching, which is that we're using this particular professional instance for you to look at your own personal process and then to reemerge, you know, with a greater capacity in your case for making decisions in general, now that you've got a different relationship to that particular monster of yours, yours, which is your fear of failure. And I hear you on that, man. Yeah, I, I bet it's quite a common thing. Just as you answered now, I was thinking maybe things like imposter syndrome, people speaking up in meetings. It's all, there's always a reason, isn't it? It's not, it doesn't just happen that you, you know, you don't want to speak up in meetings. It's probably because you want others think about your imposter syndrome. What if I get found out? It's all that what if catastrophizing in your head or whatever. Yeah. And there's different ways of looking at that. Like CBT asks you to reframe that thought and to question the thought almost like a scientist. I find that incredibly valuable. But other tools are to, to look into your emotional life or into your relationships and how it comes up there. This isn't navel gazing because it's like doing that will help you reemerge with a greater capacity, a greater wisdom and ability to do stuff in, of material consequence in the world. And something that came up for me, by the way, when you mentioned that list of, you know, fear of failure, imposter syndrome, et cetera, is this odd paradox that on some level, I think one thing I'm hearing a lot from our clients is the feeling that they come out really valuing themselves, right? Which is beautiful. And um, I could I could categorize that as realizing you're special. Also, I'd hope what many of us could learn is that you're not special. You're not the only one to have a fear of failure. You're not the only one to have imposter syndrome. I say that tongue in cheek because we should leave slightly like relieved right can't be anything other than a good thing if you if you're not the only one i think so just like you i have a fear of failure oh well there's two of us good good it's good it's good it's good to hear that does make me feel better john one of the comments i got on a linkedin post that i put out on this particular topic therapy versus coaching was when 
the challenge that somebody is having and, and use the example of fear of failure, maybe it's not the best one, but if that is affecting somebody's life every single day and is that where it becomes a clinical issue? Is you make a recommendation for it? Is that where it gets into mental health? Yeah, it's interesting. All these lines are, are slightly slippery, right? And we're trying our best to delineate them whilst acknowledging complexity and nuance, which knows no lines. So that's the odd balancing act we're playing with. What we do see, so first of all, we're a coaching service, right? Businesses pay us to help people fundamentally, in their view, perform better. But the way in which we go about that is to look at our personal processes as humans. So, so we're there for, for professional reasons, albeit they're professional reasons that have an incredibly big heart in the case of all our coaches. However, sometimes, you know, you start with a fear of failure in a boardroom and you go to places where you, well, what, what comes up over the course of a relationship and as trust builds is genuine trauma, mental health issues, daily suffering that is of a different degree than a pure being scared of your PowerPoint presentation, right? And when we get to those places, what we've seen is that it's useful for our coach to acknowledge that, that we've kind of, whilst we're, try, whilst we're using the fact that you and me are human beings and that we're connecting on that deeper human level in order to eventually circle back to our ability to perform better, there's moments in life where what we need is, is just personal help. And we've actually made the decision that any of our coaches, if in that situation, first of all, we just try and help that person. And we can because we're qualified to go there. So we've had some instances where that has become a personal therapeutic relationship between the coach and the coachee. We take no profit as a company at all. And it's now considered a situation where that person needs personal help. Then it's up to the company as to whether they want to fund that or not. These are case-by-case scenarios. But certainly the only thing that matters to us at that point is the person. That happens because there's more of us suffering than we can tell. Um, and like, you know, like everyone says, mental health and, and trauma are not things that are visible. But are, are the reason we're employed in the first place is for that professional context. But certainly, you know, the line is not as clear as we wish it was. It would be so great if you had a professional life and a personal life. But that is in large parts an illusion that we have. Of course it is. So just a couple of questions left, John, just very conscious of time. I've really enjoyed speaking about this, this particular subject. Who would be the best candidates for coaching in your view? Yeah, I mean, it's tricky, it's tricky to just not answer everyone. Um, but if I had to prioritize, what I'm really seeing is amongst leadership teams, the value of it for quite a few reasons. One is that leaders, I do think, deal with a higher order of, of complexity by virtue of managing and leading others, but also often working in more abstract sections of work, being slightly less hand-on or more strategic or having a longer like time horizon to their thinking. And they're often in charge of navigating huge amounts of change. The reason I think our particular coaching product is incredibly valuable for that is, first of all, that navigating change is hard emotionally, mentally, it's taxing. It's a real reason we burn out. We're dealing with constant ambiguity. And yet our kind of caveman system just wants constant certainty and linearity. And that's certainly not the case in 2022. I think we, we can all finally see that. So leadership teams value it massively and really see you know the t the word we keep hearing is how effective it is professionally for them but definitely 
therapeutically. Like we, we, we've wondered whether we should call it therapeutic coaching because a lot of people leave with some, you know, I'm changing my voice to that relieved. <sighs> so I think leadership teams can really, really benefit from it. We are seeing a trend that people in C-suite or some sort of senior management team are valuing it and then offering it to their teams as well. And that's, again, in order to increase the complexity of your sense making and therefore work better, but also because, you know, we all need a bit of help, I think. Of course we do. Absolutely. And just while we're on that, if any leadership teams or any organizations generally want to get in touch with you or the listening collective, John, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah. So just our website is probably the best place, the listening collective. Org. You can send us a message and get in touch there. And there's a bunch of fun things coming soon on there as well with, with some videos and other content. So meet us there and we'll be on the other side of an email. It'd be great to chat. Fantastic. We'll pop all the, the links within the article, the blog article itself, for this podcast. John Barnes, thanks ever so much for your time. Really enjoy chatting. Thanks, man. Take care. Yeah, you too. Thanks for listening to Psych for Business. For show notes, resources, and more, visit evolveassess.com.